0: It can be hard to know what our kids are really thinking and feeling, but when we encourage kids to engage with us in conversation, and when we lean in and actively listen, we inevitably learn something that helps us do better by them. Welcome to Dear Highlights, the podcast inspired by letters and emails from kids who write to highlights, seeking a listening ear and a little guidance as they wind their way through childhood. A short, sweet season, but also a period of heavy lifting for kids. I'm Christine French Cully, editor-in-chief of Highlights, and your podcast host. I'm joined by Hilary Bates, our podcast producer and thoughtful mom of two. We're here to amplify the voices of children and to explore with expert guests many of the issues that kids and families wrestle with regularly. We're glad you've joined us.
1: Dear Highlights, my Highlights. mom and dad have dear been separated for Highlights. about a month. You to have have I've been I've been guests. I get keys.
0: At Highlights, we sometimes hear from kids who don't want to go to school for various reasons. Brent from Iowa wrote, Dear Highlights, sometimes I get scared when I go to school. I'm afraid I might get in trouble, though I have my work done. What can I do not to be scared? And a reader from San Antonio, Texas, wrote heartbreakingly to say that she no longer felt safe at school after the Uvalde shooting in her state. She wrote, I'm scared. Help me. And a seven-year-old from Modesta wrote, I'm a second grader and my new teacher is very strict. She is so strict, I never want to go to school anymore. What can I do? Thanks. There are all kinds of reasons why kids might be reluctant to get out of bed and go to school in the morning. Some children might not even be able to articulate their reasons. But... We see these kids growing in number right now, and it's concerning. And Hillary, I know this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart.
1: School avoidance is a term that many of our listeners may not have heard yet, but it is being experienced in millions of homes across the United States. And as you mentioned, there's really been an explosion of it during the pandemic. In my house with my daughter, we have been learning about and dealing with school avoidance for years now, so this is a very personal conversation for me and one I was really excited to have. We had the chance to talk with Jane Dembski, who is the founder of the School Avoidance Alliance and is really pulling together resources for educators and for parents about this growing problem that really is underpinned by many of the mental health challenges that students in the United States are facing right now.
0: Helping people understand this phenomenon is a personal mission for Jane because she watched her own son struggle with school reluctance. And I think listeners, when you hear our conversation, you'll hear the passion in her voice. Jane, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We're really glad you're here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. School avoidance is not spoken about often. It's under the radar. So it is so important. And thank you for inviting me to share the message to all your listeners.
1: Jane, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. I know that we've discussed before recording today that uh, my family has dealt with very serious school refusal issues with my daughter and So one of the things that that experience lets me know is that I know a lot of people immediately hear about this topic and they think to themselves, kids nowadays think that they're in charge. The parents need to be in charge. Can you tell us a little bit about what we know about the history of school refusal? Is this a totally new phenomenon?
2: Okay, so... It's interesting. There is a research study that I found recently where they go back and they give nomenclature that dates back to the 1930s, where it was documented as being school avoidance. They had crazy names back in the day, and not until now do we call it school avoidance and school refusal, but it's been documented. And my son went through this, I guess, about 10 years ago as when he started, and there was nothing covered in the media, so really no one knew about it. I guess what we can say is that it's always been there, slowly growing, but it was never big enough for the schools to really say, hey, we have to act. Now, obviously, post-COVID, the world has changed up, gone upside down, and the kids who were holding on for dear life, who might have had anxiety before or any issues, but were making it to school because they had the will, whatever, they had that extra oomph, they were going to school after COVID, being at home, being comfy and questioning, why do I need to do all that homework? Why do I need to be in school? So obviously it's tremendously, in one, on one hand it's awesome because now people are paying attention, but obviously we don't want, want more kids with school avoidance, but COVID has brought, brought it to the forefront like never before.
0: Jane, how is school refusal different from truancy?
2: Thank you for asking that. This is a big issue with schools and attendance officers and truancy courts. Truancy is when the family does not know that the kid is absent from school. The child is hiding it. They're usually doing it for tangible rewards. Hanging out with a friend, playing a video game with someone else's friend. school avoidance, the parents know exactly where the child is. And unfortunately that child, usually in their bedroom, might be crying or hiding under their covers.
1: So it's pretty common that kids might wake up and not be in the mood to get up and go to school. Uh, It happens to grownups with work too. How can a parent tell that something more serious than that normal experience is happening?
2: Yeah, that's a good question because um, it's important that you ask that, but there are ways to tell. Yes, kids are gonna have the days when they can't go. I guess what I always say to parents is, first of all, your gut. Always listen to your gut and patterns. If it happens for a week, maybe something's up, blah, 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 we don't know. If the child is able to get back to school the week later, then things have settled and it's okay. But if after two weeks, I would not wait. And the problem is that Schools will, when I talk, let me backtrack. When I say that the kid is having problems, they might be hiding under their covers. They might be verbally saying that they're having a problem going to school. The kids, again, who are saying that, you know, I want to stay home for a few days, that's fine. But after two weeks of seeing a pattern where your child is obviously demonstrating some kind of fear, emotional discomfort about going to school, you need to talk to your child's school. Because they need to get involved. Now, what usually happens is, unfortunately, schools are overwhelmed, as we all know, and they might say, well, let's see, maybe this is a phase. Um, I don't believe in phases. Phases are signs that something is going on. So, what I would say to parents is, your gut, when you see a pattern, when you're uncomfortable, and you should reach out to the school district. And don't let them push you off.
1: Yeah, Jane, I really appreciate what you're saying that parents need to tune into themselves. I know for us, one of the things that was very difficult is that my daughter has real serious chronic migraine disease. And so for years, it was hard for us to disambiguate between the real migraine she was having and the days that she was expressing emotional pain as head pain. And I, so I'm also bringing that up because... I want to say for parents that when you say trust your gut and tune into your kid, sometimes there can be a period of ambiguity, even in parents that are very tuned into their children. And I just want to honor how hard it can be.
2: You are correct. And thank you for pointing that out, especially with a physical illness, as you say, I can't imagine how hard it is to try to decipher what is really going on. So that is a double whammy of the challenge. Jane,
0: we're hearing that some school districts are starting to encourage parents to let their kids have mental health days off from school. But the treatment for school anxiety is actually about countering avoidance of school. How do you think about these recommendations?
2: You know, I, w- I speak to clinicians all the time experts who specialize in school avoidance and they say that's the worst thing because once a kid feels that they can retreat and go feel safe and hide that can promote wanting to avoid school but this is a very hard situation because sometimes kids do need a break so I do not have the answer to this. I want our clinicians to step up and tell us. Because, listen, as as you said, sometimes we just don't want to go to work. I guess if it's one day, maybe, and the kid's showing no signs and they're just exhausted then maybe it's okay. But this is a really hard decision. When I saw that um, states starting bringing up those laws and kids were asking for it, I was like, oh, this is awesome because I'm very pro-mental health and kids' health. But then when I spoke to clinicians who are experts in school avoidance, they say, hey, this is a very you know, um, tricky path to go down. We have to be really careful. Very complicated issue.
1: It really is. And it also makes me think about that sometimes when you're in a family that's dealing with this, what you really need is for people to be willing to share some of how hard it is with you. And that is what you often need the school to do and teachers to do is to be open to receiving a kid who is maybe crying maybe doesn't look organized enough to be in the classroom in that moment. But what you really need from them is not to say, go home and get yourself together, but to say, I'm going to wait next to you until this moment feels more
2: comfortable. That is beautiful, Hillary. Have you seen schools do that? I mean, school, some we teachers a, do do that. Yes. yes. We have
1: had a really wonderful experience just recently with our school, um, which is we have moved our daughter into a private school environment here in Ohio and they have been really i what i want to say about that is that they have the resources and the staff to be able to bring that empathy because I am in no way criticizing the prior school experiences that we had. We know the situation with schools right now, their staffing levels, the tremendous stress that are on them. And often, while they may have the heart to offer that to a child, they literally do not have the bodies to offer that to a child.
2: You've hit the nail on the head. That is the conundrum.
1: So what are the common mental health disorders that underlie this school avoidance?
2: Well, as you would have guessed, it's obviously a lot of anxiety disorders, general anxiety, social anxiety, separation anxiety, separation usually in younger kids, but it does happen to older kids as well. OCD, depression, it could be anything, trauma. It also happens when kids are out for an illness for an extended period of time, and then they miss that whole groove and fall out of the groove of school or feel that work Is loading up and they're daunted by it. So, there, and often kids who have transitions, a lot of military kids, obviously you would assume bullying that is not handled correctly by the school. There are so many ways that this can happen. So, that's the complicated part. And a lot of the times it's co occurring things, it's not just one. Like with my son, I look at his experience. He had social anxiety, general anxiety. But later he told me uh, in his high school years that he also had a teacher in fourth grade who criticized him and called him out and sent him out of the room. And that was, you know, another experience that he had that made him feel bad and had bad feelings inside. It also can be wrapped up in perfectionism, um, the demands and pressures of the on the school, ADHD, perfectionism. So it's really hard to nail down. I wish I could.
0: Jane, we've been looking at some recent studies that show that about 2 to 5% of students are refusing school on a regular basis due to anxiety or depression. Is there something this tells us about school environments?
2: Well, in my opinion, and I speak to... School psychologists and the clinicians who treat these kids and the parents, I think yes. (laughs) Overwhelming, too much homework that I hate when I hear the kids are doing two to three hours of homework a night. They're not having a balanced lifestyle. And the kids have seen this when they've been out of school from COVID, like questioning their lifestyles, just like we adults question our work-life balance, right? Right. The school's whole pressure with getting into the right college. The AP is forced upon their kids. It's um, school does need to be reevaluated, and that is something that certain schools are looking inward, and they're saying, "Hey, what is the purpose of education? Is it academics, or is it the whole child?"
1: I know something we believe in really strongly at Highlights is how important play is and that play is the crucial work of childhood and that play is, in fact, in some ways, preventative medicine for so many difficulties that kids come across. And we know that teachers really believe this and advocate for for it as well. But somehow in our school system, we are increasingly pushing out time that is free play that gives kids an opportunity to regulate, to have downtime, to have physical activity. And um I think these topics are interrelated in a way that makes me feel, you know, even more passionate about talking in all our spaces about how much kids need to play. Even older kids. Well and sometimes people hear the word play. I think they think Two or three year olds or four year olds, but there's all kinds of social play that middle schoolers are doing, that high schoolers are doing.
2: Yes, that is true. I love when teachers do group work, you know, forcing the kids to work together on a regular basis, obviously teaching problem solving skills and getting along with others. But, you know, kids who might have social anxiety or are shy, they are forced to find those skills within themselves. So yes, there are so many things we can talk about with school reform and ways to look at things. And I think cutting art and music
0: from the curriculum has also had an impact. I mean, those things can be super stress-relieving for so many children.
2: Preaching to the choir, totally agree.
1: Are there certain demographics of kids who are more
2: likely to have these issues? That is a very good question. The research has not been able to show that there is any difference. socioeconomically, female, male. But a, a lot of the research is done in underprivileged areas. So the narrative out there seems disproportionate and they haven't, there is really no difference.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm really conscious of is that I think I'm hearing that it's a phenomenon that's shared across classes, but I know as someone who has some resources available to me that I could get my daughter a lot of support and help that I'm very aware are not universally available.
2: That is the key. That is, again, it's the haves and the have-nots. It kills me, the disparity of mental health resources. That's something that, you know, hurts my heart And it's something that, as parents and adults, we can't back off our local governments, legislators, um, the disparity in mental health resources. I don't hear people talking about mental health enough to the local politicians, and that's something we really have to step up and take ownership of.
0: Jane, what can parents do at home to support kids who are refusing to go to
2: school? Well, first, all the clinicians will tell you is not to create that comfortable, homey environment to take away their devices, don't give them their favorite snack foods, don't give them too much of your attention. And that's what they say. As a parent, I have to tell you that is really, really hard to do. There is a program out there called SPACE. I always forget what the acronym stands for, Supportive Parenting. It's um, from Dr. Eli Leibowitz at of Yale University. And he talks about how not giving into kids' accommodations. Now, when we talk about accommodations, I'm not talking about school accommodations. Those are important. I'm talking about home accommodations. And I did this a lot with my kids as well. Both my kids have anxiety. And things like they from the very young age they were scared to go into a store by themselves and talk to the cashier or order from the waitress and we would just take over and do it now i'm saying yell at your kid and say order from the freaking waitress you do it but slowly over time you know try to work on that skill and same thing at home. It's like when the kids have these food issues or non-aller, n- no allergies related, just preferences, and the mother is making the kid a separate dinner. That's an accommodation because they are going outside of their realm of the normal activities to enable and feed on this kid's issue. So also do not yell at your child. This is so hard. And... It happens between parents a lot that they will disagree as well. Maybe there's one parent who's like pulling the covers, get out of bed. And then the other parent who's more calm and understands and more nurturing. You can't yell at the kid. You have to be indifferent, level, balanced, model good behavior, model, don't let the kid see your anxiety and... They are not manipulating you. This is an issue. And keep steady in terms of being supportive and looking for the right help and resources through either private mental health and or school resources.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I am going to admit that there have been moments over the last couple years when I, a person who considers myself a very patient and understanding parent, have reached a point where I've yelled at my daughter, I've apologized to her afterwards, it felt terrible. In that moment when you have a job maybe and you need to get to work and your spouse needs to get to work and your child is too big for you to pick them up and put them in the car and they will not move, you can experience a moment of extreme stress. And I really feel for parents in that circumstance and know that that behavior might help in a second, but it does not help the overall problem. I also always think it's very interesting when people talk about um, like mental health is up in our brain and physical health is in our body, but anxiety is in our body. And I think sometimes parents realizing that can help them to have more empathy for their kid in that moment. I know that a big breakthrough moment for my daughter and I was when she was finally old enough to articulate to me how anxiety felt for her, that her throat felt like it was closing up, that her body was shaking. And it completely dissembled any frustration that I had with her in that moment, because I was thinking overwhelming by empathy in that moment when you can understand like, oh yeah, this is a big, big deal for a small person. I'm get. just curious,
2: how old was she when she was able to articulate that to you?
1: She told me that when she was 11. And we had already been going through what I now, in retrospect, understand was school avoidance since second grade. So, It was years into it. And that is what's so difficult sometimes too about parenting is that, especially for a kid suffering from anxiety, they may be feeling a lot of things that they are just not able to put together and describe to you in a story.
2: That's very important, Hilary, because a lot of kids, even older kids, I had this with my son and I hear it from the ladies and the parents and the men I speak to in my support group, parent peer support group, that sometimes kids cannot articulate what they're feeling. They don't know what this in their mind is. They don't know what it is. And that's very frustrating for a parent.
1: Yeah, and I, I did also really benefit from reading about space, the supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions. One of the things that I love is what that book starts with is understanding that parents' behavior plays into these behaviors, but that does not mean it is your fault it does not mean it is your fault. And that's really freeing to see you can learn to do better things to support your child without feeling that you were doing the wrong thing intentionally. All of us who find ourselves in a situation like this, we're not prepared for this as part
2: of parenting. That's a huge point. And again, we are born to be nurturers and carers. So everything that we're supposed to do is kind of counterintuitive to our natural inclinations. So that's an important point that you bring up.
1: Um, So what can a school system do? So we talked about what parents can do. What can a school system do to support a kid who's anxious or resistant to coming to school?
2: This is a big deal, and thank you for asking for it. Schools need to get professional development, training education on school avoidance, severe anxiety disorder. As we said, schools have so much going on, but with the growing concern of school avoidance especially, schools are becoming overwhelmed. So they need to be educated. They need to understand the whole picture. It's complex, as you know. There are many misconceptions out there. A lot of schools treat kids with school avoidance as if they are truant and being bad kids. They say they're being manipulative. They are treating them punitively. The parents are getting attendance letters, truancy threats. So first I say to schools are, "Please get professional development and training on school avoidance." We do that by the way now. Secondly, I would say, let your parents know on your website. Now this is a hard one for schools, because parents don't know there's something called the child study team in the school, which where the school psychologists and the social workers are. You don't know unless you're sent there. Maybe if your kid has an intellectual disability, parents don't necessarily realize until you're thrown into the world, they also are there for mental health issues. So parents don't know that the school can help them and has resources and that they are obligated by law, regardless of any child's disability, that each child in America is entitled to a free, appropriate public education. This is what we call under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So what happens is, often parents, when this happens, they don't tell the school about it because school's not going to understand. Who am I going to tell that my kid has anxiety? They're hiding under the covers, blah, blah, blah. And you don't know until, who knows? Many parents don't find the child study team until way into it, the school doesn't, might not catch it. Most likely they don't because parents always see it at home first and the school might see something different. I had this totally with my son when he was able to get to school at the beginning. They're like, oh, he is happy. He is fine in school. But as we all know, kids suck it up and hold it in because they don't want to appear different to their peers and teachers. And when they come home, they break down. So, Schools should try to be transparent about, on their website, if there is an issue about going to school, call us. Let us get involved. Because otherwise, parents don't know anything about this. And then they don't, school doesn't find out until it's crisis proportion. Then the school is inundated. And it behooves the school, and I'm trying to tell this when I speak to schools now. Early intervention. It's so easy to say, It's one of the best uh, indicators for success, school-home collaboration and early intervention, but it's very hard to achieve. So they have to work hard.
1: Yeah, and we have seen that there's been an explosion in school avoidance post-COVID. We know that a lot of people's minds are on we need to bring resources in to schools to help some of the deficits that have been created by COVID. To me, this is, of course, because I've experienced it, but also in reading about it, I think it's not just about math and reading scores. This is one of the serious deficits that has been increased by what we have all been through in the last couple of years. And I really hope, I'm so, I'm glad that you're out there talking about it. I hope that more people will be talking about it to see more of an investment in helping kids get, get I through do, I do
2: want to say one more thing that's very, I believe in strongly as a mental health advocate as well. Schools are starting to bring in mental health literacy and education, but it has to be more than just a two-week segment in their health class, which unfortunately oftentimes it is. Mental health education should start in the early years. I'll leave that up to the educational professionals and the clinicians to decide, but I feel that fourth, fifth, sixth graders should start learning about mental health and cognitive behavioral therapy, because cognitive behavioral therapy really is all about our automatic thoughts, which every child and human being alive, adult has. And your thoughts cause feelings, which cause your um, your behaviors and actions, right? So there's something called automatic negative thoughts, which every human being has. And cognitive behavioral trains your mind to recognize. That some of them aren't right. Some of what I'm thinking is not right and teaches you how to reframe and review your thoughts. And this is not a hard concept for kids to understand. I spoke to um, therapists who treat school avoidance kids at Columbia University, and they treat kids as young as first and second graders and kindergartners. And they say that they can understand this concept. And parents need to understand it too. So I would say not only should schools have mental health education, but let the parents come in as well and be part of that.
0: Jane, you've given us lots to think about as parents and educators, but this is really a problem that affects all of society. Um, so let's you know, broaden the question a little more. If we really treasured children, as we should, it highlights our core belief is that kids are the world's most important people. Is there something that we as a society should focus on to make the world a better place for kids? Of course. <laughs> yeah, so many things. Maybe, maybe one of the most important things you think we should focus on.
2: I, I have to say two things. First, I want our legislators and our government to figure out a way and mental health proponents and advocates to figure out a way to incentivize more students in high school and college to become mental health professionals and make it easier and more affordable in some way anyway we want them to incentivize and create more mental health professionals there are not enough in our country that is a huge problem i also want our government to invest more in other mental health options and treatments for anxiety disorder Right now, our first line treatments are cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy, which are great, but they don't always do the trick. And we need more options, especially parents need in home strategies. And there are a lot of researchers out there, there's a lot of funding out there. We need some more focus on that. And then I would say to the schools think about what you want to create. Do you want to create the whole person? Is it only academic? The special education attorneys say, according to the Individuals with Disabilities Act and the um, Office of Civil Rights, that we schools are educating a whole person to become independent, to be able to live on their own, socialize, and be a productive member of society. The laws aren't saying we only want you to produce produce smart kids that get A's. So we really need to start promoting that and believing in it and nurturing it. And that is a hard road. There's a lot of pressure on our schools. I think it starts at the um, U.S. News and World Report college rankings because the most selective and hardest to get in institutions are the most, you know, uh, vied for. And then the guidance counselors and the schools want their kids to get in the best school and they push their school kids and their parents. They want them to take more APs. You know, they want them to get in the best schools. That is just so unfair to our kids.
0: Focus on the whole child, yeah. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for bringing more recognition to this issue.
1: So I am sitting here with my daughter, Jill. Hi, Jill. Hi. Who just listened to this episode with me. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions about it. Um, so you uh, are sometimes scared to go to school, yes? Yes. And how does it feel for you when you wake up and it's one of those mornings where you're really scared? You mean like physically? Yeah, Uh,
0: well, usually I'm, I don't know, I kind of feel like I'm really, like, weighed down, and I can't get up, and I'm, like, it's not necessarily pain, but sometimes it is. Like, I'll have a headache or a stomachache or something.
1: Yep. And you heard that there were some kids, other kids who wrote into highlights and they talked about how they're scared to go to school in the morning too. Um, For kids like that, what kind of advice would you give them as someone who's dealt with this a lot and you're doing better, going to school more consistently now? Well, I guess sometimes if you just
0: make yourself do it on one day, you can kind of start, Going again,
1: yeah, and
0: it'll be less, less hard
1: yeah. as you go. Like every time the fear shrinks a little bit, and it's not quite as bad, I guess. Yeah, well, Joe, I'm really proud of you for just dealing with this thing that's hard and for also for coming and talking to us about it. Thank you so much.
0: You can learn more about kids' hopes and dreams and their worries and fears from the book, Dear Highlights. What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available on Highlights.com or wherever you buy your books. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hillary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher.